It's time for a Your Gal Friday flashback episode. We're re-airing an episode of our sister show that ties into a gal pal's one cool thing. We started this week with Bonnie bringing to the table actress Ala Nazamova. We're ending this week staying in early Hollywood. In this special episode of Your Gal Friday, the gals talk about four female film pioneers, one of whom, Dorothy Arzner, was, as Ala would say, a member of the sewing circle. Dorothy was the inventor of the boom mic, an editor, a director, and in a 40-year relationship with Marion Morgan. Dorothy's story begins at the 32-minute mark. However, the other gals, Alice Guy Blanchet, Lois Weber, and Margaret Booth, will amaze you. You will soon see how each of them influenced film as it is today. This episode was released in 2017 when I, Dr. Leah Leach, was going by my stage name, Kate Chaplin. The name change is a long story, and it's for another day. Until then, enjoy this special Your Gal Friday flashback episode. Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts, Kate and Phoebe, will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to Your Gal Friday. I'm Kate Chaplin. And I'm Phoebe Freer. Today we are doing a special episode of Your Gal Friday. We're going to be talking about four early film pioneers. Now, starting with the birth of cinema in 1895 and going till 1982, we're going to talk about gals who created the framework for movies today, invented techniques that told a richer story, and one who was even more popular and paid more than D.W. Griffith. Yet many of us have never heard of these gals. The gals we're talking about today are Alice Guy Blanchet, Lois Weber, Dorothy Arzner, and Margaret Booth. So I'm actually really excited about this episode because as our listeners know, me and Kate, you and I are both uh, filmmakers. Yes. And so learning more about female filmmakers in particular is just really exciting to me because it's still a very male-dominated industry. Oh, so yeah. it's very interesting to see like the first female filmmakers, where they came from, and then where we still are, and then how much we've advanced and all that stuff. So I think this is going to be a really fun episode. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love it. So Kate, you actually did the research for all of these gals and created this program for a film festival. Is that correct? Yes. So I actually created this for the Hobnobbin Film Festival. They asked me to come and present women film pioneers. And I picked these four gals in particular uh, because they paint a very wide picture of the film industry. And they also have some remarkable similarities as well. So this episode is a special one. It'll be unlike our regular episodes because we're only going to lightly touch on their lives. We're going to focus more on their body of work and and more of what it meant for the film industry moving forward. I gotcha. That actually makes a lot of sense. So we could compare and contrast and actually, you know, observe what the film filmmaking was then versus now, which is really cool. Exactly. And we're covering four gals as well. So totally. it speeds up so, the process a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to like, and then they grew up in, oh, okay. <laughs> Which is still extremely important. However. It totally is. But we don't want to make a four hour episode today. So right. We'll <laughs> make it concise. 
So we should mention our first episode was actually on Alice Gable and we did go into super detail, which was awesome. Yes. So is this going to be similar? So our our Alice episode is actually still our most popular episode. It's awesome. Uh, and if our listeners haven't checked that one out, I strongly recommend it uh, because we do go into far more detail of Alice's life and legacy. Today is really more of a compare and contrast, um, as well as kind of looking at how film changed over time as well. Awesome. That's really cool. So let's get into it. All right. Alice, Alice, as you already know, (laughs) but as a refresher for this glorious contrasting compare. I will never get tired of talking about Alice. I I know, right? (laughs) She's my favorite. (laughs) She is my favorite, too. I I just adore her. And she was a gal of so many firsts in filmmaking. It's amazing. Um, She invented and improved upon the framework that would not only make movies last over a hundred years but actually also make them profitable as well we owe a lot of that to Alice wow (laughs) so really quickly uh Alice was born in 1873 in France and while she worked as a secretary for Goumont which at the time was a still photograph company she attended the Lumiere Brothers event that showcased moving pictures of workers leaving the Lumiere plant in Lyon now the brothers showed this at various exhibits of this new technology and they wondered what the use could be and so something clicked in Alice and she wrote in her autobiography I thought I could do it better and she did so she thought it would be more exciting to tell a story in a moving picture and she asked her bosses at Goumont for permission to make a film on her lunch break and she made The Cabbage Fairy which is considered by many to be the very first narrative story film Now, there are some historians that will disagree and poo-poo on it. (laughs) Right. I I just had a random thought. Yeah. Did she have to ask for permission to film on her lunch break because she was using their equipment? Yes, because of the equipment. She wanted to borrow the equipment. Yes, because like, the equipment was brand new. Her, yeah, her lunch break is her own. Wait a minute here. Right, very true, very true. <laughs> <laughs> that makes more sense. Yes, they probably had it like, we don't know what to do with this. It's in a storeroom somewhere, you know, trying to right. figure out a use for it. Or maybe somebody else was going to be borrowing it. So it was, you know, is it available for me to borrow on my lunch break? <laughs> and try my right. hand at this newfangled motion picture thing. I love it. Yes, absolutely. So now when it comes to um, Alice being recognized as the very first uh, filmmaker to create the narrative film, um, it's a very good strong chance that it was her because history has not been very favorable to Alice. Google isn't even nice to Alice. I know. Yeah. It's really Uh sad. I know. If you just put in the search the very first narrative film or first narrative film, it comes up with The Great Train Robbery of 1903 by Edwin S. Porter. But, you know, Phoebe and I, we can do math, right? We can do math. We can can math. Right. And The Cabbage Fairy came out in 1896. That would be before uh, The Great Train Robbery. So, interestingly enough. Um, In my, um, like, basic film courses, I I knew about the Great Train Robbery being first. Exactly. But, like, I watched it before. Like, oh, didn't hear about this. 
Of course, right? Yep, that's the one we hear about. I mean, it is important to note that in this time that we're talking about, film was so new. Um, And it's not the industry that we know today where we have like the internet movie database, IMDb. Um, It was seen as something then that would not make money. (laughs) Uh, It wasn't seen as having a commercial value. And uh, I guess your friend indie filmmaker, some things haven't changed. Oh, 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 too harsh. Oh, but so true. (laughs) But painful filmmaking jokes aside, uh, the records of films, and in fact, the films themselves from the late 1890s were not seen as something that have a shelf life. I mean, many of these films that we're actually going to talk about today have been lost, uh, are missing. Uh, Prints of them are very, very hard to find. Also, a little bit more context of the time period that we're talking about. Now, the major players uh, that historians will cite are the Lumiere brothers. Now, the Lumiere Mm -hmm. brothers, they made about 50 films themselves. Uh, Georges Millier, he made about 500 films. And D.W. Griffith, he made roughly about 500 films as well. So now, Phoebe, you know this. Tell the good Mm -hmm. people how many films Alice made. (laughs) This makes me so happy. Alice made over a thousand films. What? I know. I know. (laughs) And 22 of them were feature lengths. That is amazing. Right? I love it. Absolutely. She was a visionary filmmaker as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, She combined special effects visuals. uh, She used hand tinting colors. She ran films backwards. Um, And here's another fun fact for our listeners that will make you that person on trivia night. Um, Phoebe, do you remember being told what the very first film was that used synchronized sound? I do. It was the jazz singer. Right. Uh, so I was told. So you were told the jazz singer, as was I. <laughs> Yes. And that will probably win you on Trivia Night. However, right. uh, The Jazz Singer was released in 1927 using the Vitaphone. And that is a record-like disc that accompanies the film. Now, what if I told everybody that Alice was releasing films with the Chronophone, which is also a record-like disc that is synced to a film. And she was doing this as early as 1908. It was actually Alice's idea to combine visuals to a song and not just have the music play as an accompaniment, but also sync to the picture. So basically, Alice created the music video in 1908, (laughs) as well as the first sound and picture synced images. Yep, just in Alice fashion, you know. You know, inventing things as she does. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You just get used to the fact that this is what she does. This is her life, you know. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so Alice moved to the United States in 1907 to be the head of production for Gumont's U.S. operation. And a few years later, she opened her own film studio, The Solax Company. She opened it with her husband, Herbert, and George A. Maggie. And they opened it in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So they actually created a state-of-the-art facility with in-house film processing, stages with glass roofs, state-of-the-art stages, set fabrications, costume departments, 
and administration services. Uh, This made her the very first female studio owner. And that place was massive. (laughs) Right. Every time I hear the description of this, I get so jealous. I know. I I want all of it. I want to work there. Yes, right. I want to work there so bad. (laughs) I want to work in a building with glass roofs so I can use the sunlight. Like, Uh that's genius. Exactly. Why don't we do this still? Everything in-house, all in one spot. It's perfect. It's so cool. Yeah, it is. Now, Fort Lee, New Jersey was actually the largest area of filmmaking pre-Hollywood. We're talking before Los Angeles. Uh, D.W. Griffith, Fatty Arbuckle, and Max Sennett were all there at the same time. And those are names that we end up actually hearing about in film class and film history. So besides the wonderful work that the Fort Lee Film Commission still does in preserving the history of their cities and as well as encouraging new filmmakers... I visited Fort Lee in March, and it feels like Fort Lee hasn't been able to preserve its filmmaking buildings. I went to visit Solax, and there is a sign next to an Acme grocery store. It was it was very sad. (laughs) A lot of the town is modern and new. Yeah, Uh, I'm not that far away from New Jersey, so I'm like, oh, I should go over. To, to see, see a nothing. sign. Okay, <laughs> to see a sign. Okay, that sounds great. Yep. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Maybe exactly. I could just make a building with a glass roof and duplicate it and then, like, <laughs> you know, pay homage to her or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, a lot of, and I, I just, I stood there and I tried to visualize what it would have been like. I saw pictures um, of the right. studio. It was as it was being built with Alice standing in front of it on horseback. It was awesome. Right. <laughs> and I'm That's like, so- oh, I love this place. I love the idea of this place. But, um, but yeah, just it's the, you know, the way of modern city building, unfortunately. It yeah. And it's not still there. At least there's a plaque. There is. At least least we can find it. Yes, exactly. It's a very nice plaque dedicated to her films with a big poster of one of her films um, on the back of it as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. See, there's something. Yes, absolutely. So I kind of know the next thing that you're about to talk about just because I do. And like, I'm so excited. This is my favorite part about Alice, I think. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So at Solex, Alice directed her actors to be natural. That's the part that Phoebe loves. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. By the time film came around, um, theater, of course, was the well-known storytelling medium. Um, And of course, as actors know specifically when you act in theater you have to over exaggerate everything so it reads well to the person way in the back of the room but on the film side you don't need to over exaggerate at all because the camera can pick up every detail and can get in really close and somehow Alice just instinctively knew that the film was going to be able to pick this up so she started always telling her actors to be natural. Be natural. Yeah. To just fight that urge of over-exaggerated acting, which we still see a lot in especially early silent cinema. We see a lot of oh, vaudeville yeah, totally. and theater actors doing it, but totally. not in Alice films. Nope. <laughs> yep. Not at all. So while Alice was making films and inventing new ways to tell a fuller story, she put her husband in charge of the business side. And he not only chose some very poor investments, but he also started another competitive production company and had an affair with an actress from one of his films. 
boo. Of course he did. <laughs> she started a stereotype. Exactly. Sad of Hollywood face. marriages. Not in pre-Hollywood marriages. Right. <laughs> Being broken yeah. up by, yes, exactly. All She sad. started the trend before it was cool, but it's really not that cool. But you know. It. Right. Exactly. Oh. So the Solex company folded in 1922 due to Herbert's bad investments and Alice didn't make another film. She did try a comeback in 1927, like Millier's did, but by then the film industry was financially successful, and that means there was little room for women in positions of power. Now, Alice lived until 1968, and not only did she get to see the industry that she helped create thrive, but also to see her work be forgotten. And I think that's what saddens us a lot. Totally. That's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. What are your favorite bits about Alice as the early film pioneer? Oh, goodness. I love how inventive she was. She did so many new and different things. That we still do today. Yeah, that that we still do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm like a storyteller first, technical person second, Mm -hmm. or third, perhaps, even. And I'm like, I don't know. I can't come up with technical stuff out of the blue, just out of the hat, like, without prompting. Not very easily, at least. She did that, like, five times. Like, how do you even... (laughs) Like, the people around her must have been so intimidated, you know? Yeah. I think she always was going through the funnel of what does the story need. And so she was inventing things and creating things that fold the story more. It was a story focus to me, too. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, I love the be natural thing. I, I firmly believe that if you're a filmmaker, there's a reason. You kind of have this intuitive knowledge just kind of built into your personality. Mm-hmm. Because there's some things about film that you just, you don't really learn, you just do it. Kind right. Of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. So I think that's why the be natural thing really strikes a chord with me because she just knew it. She was just like, okay, mm-hmm. I can see subtle movements. The people won't, or the. Um, the audience won't relate to it as well. Right. So be natural. Like yeah. that is just, it, it just shows me her character so much that like she really was a phenomenal, like through yeah. through. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it helps me like relate to her. Oh, I have ideas that are like this, that mm-hmm. like maybe don't make sense to other people, but I know it'll work because I know film. You know, right, exactly. Like it's a craft and you've studied it and you've absorbed right. it and you've right. tested it. It's one of those things where it's like trial and error is very much film. Right, exactly. Alice is like very dear to my heart. We'll yeah, she's an amazing inspiration for any independent filmmaker out there. Absolutely. I think there's a lot yeah. more you could probably learn from Alice than you could learn from some of the other ones that are taught in film school like Milliers and Griffith oh gosh, and Lumiere. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I learned more about Alice than I did where than the ones that you just said. I was like, right. I definitely learned more about Alice than them. <laughs> like, right, okay, exactly. they're great, but like Alice is the one who needs a movie made about her. <laughs> yes, exactly. And supposedly there is a Kickstarter that did get funded. So right. hopefully there is a documentary coming because, you know, with Kickstarter, there's always the risks. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it takes some time. So it takes some but, time. Uh, but there's hope. 
there's There's really hope it's probably happening probably (laughs) yes well now alice actually opened the door for our next gal and that is lois weber so that is where i am all new (laughs) (laughs) all new information to phoebe lois is pretty cool too i think you're gonna like her as well so while alice was working at gumont in new york she met lois and she was a chronophone singer so alice recommends lois as a scriptwriter and director so now you know how alice was mostly a filmmaker and an innovator and a storyteller um lois was one of those more actress writer directors um she was one of those triple threats you know what i mean that's awesome (laughs) right oh my gosh so she would be in front of the cameras she would write the stories and she would also direct them as well so lois made between 200 and 400 films now many of these were co-directed by her husband it's one of those things it's duly worth noting because especially as some filmmakers statistics love to do they look at co-directed efforts versus solo efforts and they separate them out so it's important to mention it so now in 1912 lois moved from new york to los angeles a year later she was voted the first mayor of a brand new city called universal city What? That Universal City where Universal Studios is. Yes. <laughs> she was the very My first God. mayor. That's right. So Lois branches are New York filmmakers to now the starting of our Hollywood filmmakers. Yay! And because she's on the Hollywood side, though, the very early film claims, uh, claim to fames are actually given to her. Because Hollywood wanted to reinvent itself and separate itself from the East Coast years. So you will see things that Lois being credited as the first female director of a feature film, uh, The Merchant of Venice. Um, However, two things. (laughs) Number one, it is a co-directed effort. And also, Alice made a feature film in 1913. So that's where sometimes you'll see that she's the first to make a feature, a female to make a feature film. Um, But we're looking at Hollywood years versus New Jersey and New York years. Uh, It is also said that Lois is the first woman to own her own studio. But again, Alice did that seven years before her. Ah, Hollywood with their separations. Aren't they? Yes, I know. So it happened. Oh, do not pay attention to the woman behind the curtain. Right, exactly. Always pay attention to dates. Because again, we can do math. (laughs) So, but... However, Lois was wonderfully inventive, and I think she was quite a bit more daring than Alice, especially when it came to the subject matter of her films. Now, Lois was the very first to use split-screen technology in her 1913 film, Suspense. She had three separate scenes in three locations happening at the same time on the screen. It was quite interesting. Her film, Hypocrites, in 1915, also had the very first feature female nude scene she was a daring one (laughs) and she also covered some very daring subject matters too in 1916 she had a film called where are my children which discussed abortion and birth control so she was not shy yeah Yeah. so in 1914 bertha smith estimated that weber's audience was five to six million people a week and that she was as famous as dw griffith and cecil b demille She had a huge following. That is a lot of people. Yes. (laughs) That is in a week. (laughs) Wow. Yep. 
that's impressive. Yeah, it's really impressive. Oh, absolutely. In 1915, she worked for Universal and she was the highest paid director. Not the highest paid female director, the highest paid director at Universal. So studio owner Carl Lemley, who was actually known more for his frugality and cunning business sense than any kind of philanthropy, he said of Lois, I would trust Miss Weber with any sum of money that she needed to make any picture that she wanted to make. I would be sure that she would bring the money back. That's awesome. That's a studio head believing in you 100%. Right? It is quite amazing. I can give a little of that over here, so, you know. (laughs) To have that kind of support and also just that much of an audience, you know what I mean? Audiences really loved um, the the films that she made, and so they made money. Now, in 1917, she was the only woman granted membership to the Motion Picture Directors Association. Uh, She also opened her own movie studio, which was Lois Weber Productions, and then later, Famous Players Lasky, which became Paramount Pictures, they had a distribution deal with Paramount at the time, and they agreed to distribute all of her films from her own studio. Unfortunately, this would be short-lived. Oops. Yeah. So her marriage started to fall apart. And she really resisted the assembly line style of Hollywood films at the time. She really wanted to concentrate one film at a time. She really wanted to be an auteur. Mm. Um, And she was one that actually shot her films in sequence, which is crazy. I would love to do that, right? Honestly, (laughs) I don't think there's a single film I've ever made that was shot in sequence, ever. Right. Like, yeah. Even the simplest, even when I was starting out, I was like, no, it makes Mm -hmm. no sense to film it then. It makes more sense to film everything now. Right, exactly. We're here now. We'll film this part. We can get here first, even though it's the end part. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've literally filmed more ends first than I have beginning scenes first, if that made sense. Like, so that's pretty incredible that she was like, no, we have to film it in sequence. Like, that's a little crazy. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, it's probably very helpful for the actors. Extremely so. If there was little subtle changes that you wanted to do through, you know, throughout at any point, you would know it didn't impact what came before. I'm sure you and I have been on set where anybody has an idea, you know what I mean, from an actor to, you know, the sound guy, basically. And you're like, well, we can't because we already filmed it. And what... We filmed, you know, it has to have this consequence and it has to have this flow. Right. And so we can't change it here, no matter how great the idea is. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, Mm -hmm. what if she wore this purple shirt on her date because, you know, her guy likes purple or something. You're like, oh, no, we can't because we filmed the other scene and she had a blue shirt on. Continuity. (laughs) Right. Even something just as simple as that is like thrown through the loop yeah oh to film in sequence i would love it i know we do Uh, (laughs) oh but lois's films are they were cheap they were done very fast they were efficient and they were sensational topics um and the titles that she gave them really really helped too but it wasn't enough uh lois found it difficult to pay the bills and to find the capital to finance her own productions so what she did is she went to louis b mayer And she made two films for him. Then she went to Paramount and she directed five films. So these seven films gave her enough money to then buy the land that her studio was on to give her more financial stability. Yes, exactly. She put it right back into her own company. 
1920, she was considered the premier woman director of screen and the author and producer of the biggest money-making features in the history of the film business. I know, right? But once again, it would be short-lived. How, it's so crazy how things fluctuate like that. It's just like extreme they high, really extreme do. low, extreme high, extreme low. And the reason for it this time was it was the 20s. It was oh, the jazz right. age. Yeah. There was the flapper girls. There was this focus on fun and escapism. And Lois was making films about marriage and domestic life. She had titles like To Please One Woman and Two Wise Wives and What Do Men Want? Right. So her films and her views started to become considered quaint and she fell out of favor and the Paramount contract was canceled oh, oh, and her oh. production company financially collapsed. Yeah. So she had a nervous breakdown, you know, like you like do. You do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like you do. It really, it happens. It's understandable. Right. Uh, and she took a two year break away from movies. Wow. But in 1925, she came back and she came back to Universal. And Carl Lemley hired her once again, and he hired her to be in charge of the story development for their adaptations of popular novels. Now, Universal had already had success with The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Lois came in to work on the re-edits of Phantom of the Opera. She also worked on an adaptation of Uncle Tom before getting a new distribution deal with Universal, to direct her own films. Yay. So once again, she was the highest paid woman in the business. Oh my word. <laughs> she was back. We're she was back. right back again. I think Phantom of the Opera is one I've actually seen. Ah, like, there the yes, one. the Lon Chaney version is the yeah. one that she mm-hmm. worked on the re-edits for and and saved it apparently to uh to some testimony. Wow. So yeah. But it was uh it was short-lived. Uh, again, ups and downs and ups and downs. She was attached to direct some of the films uh, that came up, but then she was taken off the projects. So she went to United Artists and she went there as a script doctor. And her good friend, Frances Marin, who is a screenwriter who I hope we cover one day because she's awesome. Yeah. She helped her get back on her feet as well. Uh, Lois's final film as a director was a director for hire gig for the Seven Seas Corporation, and it was called White Heat. It was her last film, and it was her only talkie that she ever made. Oh, wow. So five years later, she died of a bleeding stomach ulcer, and she was only 60 years old. Um, Now, the thing about Lois is she anticipated the possibility of film to do even more than what it was doing. She wanted both color and 3D. She really, really did. How does she want 3D? How does she know what 3D was? I know, right? Exactly. What the heck? These people are so inventive. (laughs) They're way more inventive than I am. I need to be more inventive. Okay. Uh, Okay, I'll work on that. Got it. Exactly. They probably didn't call it 3D. They probably called it an immersive experience or something. You know what I mean? To that, uh, to that effect. So like the images felt like they were popping off the screen or sound effects or smoke effects or water to make it 3D, 4D. Sometimes we call it 4D. (laughs) Right. Okay. That, that makes yes. sense, but that's still way more inventive than I ever I know, right? possibly am. So, okay, got some standards to meet here. <laughs> you, It's also one of those things. Uh, when you're in the moment and you're creating new things, it's hard to know what is going to be revolutionary at that time totally. and innovative at that time. Yeah. It's only when you look back where you're like, oh, that thing? 
Right. That that I thought was a great idea is now groundbreaking. Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> uh, but Lois also advised young women to avoid filmmaking careers. She's very famous in telling women to just stay away from film that's making kind careers. Of, that's kind of disheartening. It's like it oh, is. But, but you see her ups and downs though, and I you're do, like, I do, I do, I get it, I get yeah. it. Honestly. To be perfectly honest, most of the time when people are like, oh, should I be a filmmaker? I'm like, you're asking the question, so probably not because you're questioning it. If you're questioning it... Right, exactly. You're, you've got doubt in your voice. If you, yeah, yeah exactly. if you're doubting mm-hmm. it, then no. Then you gotta... The, if there's doubt that this is your passion, then you should probably, you know, find a new one because... Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm not usually that harsh. Film is hard. That's what I tell people, like, yes. right off the bat. I'm like, exactly. this is hard. It's not easy. If you want to do yeah. it, you got to love it, you know? And You survive on love and passion. Exactly. And coffee. <laughs> yeah, lots of coffee. <laughs> so much coffee. So, I mean, I get it. I mean, I wouldn't say everybody should avoid filmmaking, but I do understand. You've got to love it a whole bunch. There was an article yeah. that I read, um, and I cannot remember the author that wrote it, but he talked about the amount of passion that you have to have going into a project is so high is so insurmountable. You have to love the project you're working on more than you love your favorite movie of all time. Yeah. Because you as you work on it, you start to hate it a little. Yeah. So if you're bringing the bar down from, I love this more than anything I've ever seen to it's okay. Right. And <laughs> then you're good. Right. Then you'll make another one. Exactly. <laughs> Instead of like, ah, this movie's kind of okay to, oh, I hate my life. I hate the world. I hate mm-hmm. everything right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. You don't want to get to that level because no. you won't make another film. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so we, should we move on to our next gal? Yes, I think we should. Who do we have next? All right. So next, slightly overlapping uh, with Lois is Dorothy Arzner. Now, Dorothy Arzner was born in San Francisco and she grew up in Los Angeles. Her father actually owned a restaurant that many Hollywood people frequented. Now, she wanted to be a doctor early on and she also worked overseas during World War I in the Ambulance Corps. In the book directed by Dorothy Arzner, uh, she was quoted as saying, quote, I wanted to heal the sick and raise the dead instantly. I didn't want to go through all the trouble of medicine. So that took me into the motion picture industry. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. It kind of does. It really, right? really we does. This. Oh, yeah. I'm like, uh, I like helping people. I don't like medicine. I don't want, uh, like, <laughs> I get really sad when dealing with sick people, but I like mm-hmm. movies and movies right. help people and movies preserve exactly. memories. Like, oh, it totally makes sense. So at the invitation of her friend, William DeMille, Yes, the brother of Cecil B. DeMille, the other DeMille. (laughs) That was one of her friends. Uh, On his invitation, Dorothy visited famous players Lasky in 1919. This is also at the same time that Lois Weber was there, but I can't find anything of whether or not they met each other or they knew each other, but they were both at the same place at the same time. Right. (laughs) Which is quite interesting. Now, on Dorothy's tour of various departments of the studio that would soon become Paramount Pictures, Dorothy said, quote, I remember making the observation, if one was going to be in the movie business, one should be the director, because he was the one that told everyone else what to do. Pretty much. (laughs) She hit the nail on the head right there. Very observant. Yeah. Yes. Very key. Yep. (laughs) 
So Dorothy actually started as a stenographer that year and she would type up scripts and she would get an idea not only of their format, but she would also learn very quickly of what made a good film script. So she moved from script transcriber, but she wasn't really a stellar typist. So after only about three months, she got a job in Paramount's editing bay. She impressed the big wigs on her work, Blood and Sand, a film starring Rudolph Valentino. What she did is she intercut stock footage of an actual bullfight into the movie. Uh, The movie was about a peasant who becomes a championship bullfighter. And she saved the studio a ton of money and established her filmmaker eye. That's awesome. They really loved the idea that she could cut in stock footage and save them a ton. So, like, she helped, you know, use B-roll and stock footage like we still Mm -hmm. do. That's pretty cool. Right. Exactly. Yes. And she she got on everybody's radar by doing that, too. Nice. Um, She continued to get really high praises for her editing work. Uh, One source says that she threatens Columbia Pictures unless she got a directing job. Oh, wow. (laughs) That she was using her editing prowess to get a directing job. But regardless of how she got a directing job, in 1927, Paramount assigned her Fashions for Women. It was a silent film. It was about a cigarette girl who impersonates a famous model. And the film was a success. That actually sounds fascinating. Like, I want to go look it up and watch it now. (laughs) I can't remember for sure, but it might be one of the missing ones. Because she directed two more silent films for Paramount. uh, Ten Modern Commandments in 1927, which is a lost film. That one has not been found. Uh, She also did Get Your Man with Clara Bow, and that one is incomplete. It's missing two out of its six reels. It is actually pretty hard to find a Dorothy Arsner finished film in wow. all of its uh, all of its reels and all of its consistency yeah now she did transition to talkies and she did this in a movie called Manhattan Cocktail it's part talkie uh, and part silent and Hollywood was doing this a lot at the time basically they were tiptoeing the round do we want to do silence or do we want to do talkies <laughs> they didn't know so they made them both uh, this is also a lost film except for a montage sequence that is all that exists of Manhattan Cocktail as well wow. right But now, in 1929, Wild Party was monumental for Dorothy in a lot of ways. Now, first, it was Clara Bow's very first talkie. Clara Bow was the very first it girl. She was very popular. People loved Clara Bow. And so the idea of it being her first talkie also made it a star vehicle for her. Now, Clara was not used to microphones. <laughs> they didn't have to worry about them in silent films. And it said that she would interfere with being able to move around the set because of the microphones. She would also glance at it during takes and she would ruin the shots, basically. Whoopsies. So... Dorothy had a microphone fastened to a fishing pole and had the microphone hung over the actor's heads. You know, inventing a little thing called the boom mic. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Right? That's so amazing, cool. right? <laughs> so now Dorothy didn't file the patent for the boom mic, but she is wildly credited for its invention. So now I yeah. want I want the phrase boom like a girl to like catch on now yes. in the film industry. Boom like, like a girl. Boom like a girl. Like I just want that <laughs> to be a thing now. <laughs> Absolutely, because invented by a girl. That's I so love it. Awesome. 
<laughs> yep. Now, she made a few more films with Paramount uh, before she left, and she worked as an independent director, actually. So in her independent days, they're quite fascinating. This is where she actually launched the careers of, get this, Catherine Hepburn, what? Rosalind Russell, and Lucille Ball. She was the one that found them during casting calls and gave them a shot, gave them uh, star performances, gave them that kind of, you know, uh, almost it girl in the making kind of status. Um, We know of them because of Dorothy hiring them. Catherine Hepburn actually said this about Dorothy in her autobiography. She said she had done many pictures, was very good. She wore pants. So did I. We had a great time working together. <laughs> I love it. It's so like Catherine concise, Hepburn, straight to, to the point. point. I love it. Absolutely. I mean, I and, wear pants too. But yet too. says so much. Wait, right? I have Absolutely. something in common. I'm a filmmaker and I wear pants too. Yay. That's right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Totally. Uh, now, Dorothy also became the very first woman to join the newly formed Directors Guild of America, which, you know, you and I shortened to DGA. Right. So she was the very first woman in the DGA, which was brand new at the time. Wow. Uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, now, she is also credited with being the only female director working in the 1930s, but Lois Weber released White Heat in 1934. So not exactly. I mean, I can only find one film, Lois's film, that was also released in the 1930s right. by a female director. Um, Also, Dorothy never made an official statement regarding her sexuality, but in her 40-year relationship with choreographer Marin Morgan, it was no secret to anybody in Hollywood. Also, Dorothy wore tailored suits, and she had patterned ties and cufflinks, and I always felt that it was a uniform of going into battle in a male-dominated Hollywood world. But then again, I thought maybe she just really liked suits. I mean, it could be either one. I feel like both is like a solid comparison i don't know so dorothy's last film was first comes courage in 1943 uh during production she fell ill with pleurisy which i had to look up and it's an inflammation of the lungs uh-huh. uh the picture was finished by charles vador now with the world at war she made some training films for the women's army corps she also did some commercials for pepsi actually at joan crawford's request because they worked together on the bride war red okay, that's pretty cool I know. So she did some Pepsi commercials later on because Joan Crawford was, you know, all about Pepsi. Yeah. <laughs> but later, Dorothy became a teacher at UCLA and Francis Ford Coppola what? was one of her students. What? Right? I'm so... Pretty cool, what? huh? What? Director of The Godfather. What? I'm freaking <laughs> out. Yes. That's so cool. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Uh, Dorothy died in 1979 in La Quinta, California at the age of 82. Wow, Dorothy seems pretty awesome. She's pretty cool. She's got the inventiveness like Alice does. Um, She's got, you know, a few struggles in the sense of her films are lost today. Right. But she doesn't have as many struggles as Lois did. Right. Um, of not being able to finance and not being able to right. find work. I wonder if she learned a little bit from Lois since they kind of overlapped. It is quite possible. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's out of the question. That's awesome. I think everybody in Hollywood learns from everybody to- in Hollywood, totally. but at the same time, oh they were on the scene. So I'd be looking out for, you know, <laughs> what are I, my other gals doing? <laughs> I mean, I observe other filmmakers around me. I'm not even in Hollywood. I'm like, okay, what are you doing? Okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> right. 
that seems to work. I might be able to incorporate yeah, some of that yeah. or, you know, okay, no, I tried this and I didn't like it. Let me warn other filmmakers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like help each other out. Signs. Yeah, we're, exactly. We all got it. Gotta help each other. Are you ready to get to our last gal? I am. I am. I'm All right. So our last gal that we're going to talk about today spans Los Angeles film history from 1915 to 1982. Whoa. She has the longest film career of any of the gals that we have talked about so far. And it's a very interesting dynamic. Now, Margaret Booth, she started as a patcher. It's today we would say an editor, gotcha. <laughs> but back then it was a patcher and she started as a patcher for D.W. Griffith in 1915, Wow, which is amazing. <laughs> so after a few years, she worked for Louis B. Mayer, where she was taught more the craft of film editing by John M. Stahl. Now she credits Stahl with telling her, quote, the value of a scene when it drops or doesn't drop and when it sustains. Oh, cool. And she would practice editing uh, by using film that was left on the cutting room floor. She would stay long nights uh, and edit those scraps basically to kind of tone and and find her own editing voice. She developed this craft of cutting to a rhythm, which I found fascinating because Phoebe, you do a lot of oh editing gosh, as well. Yeah. Um, and you edit our videos yeah, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> all of the uh, Your Gal Friday quick videos that come out, that is all Phoebe That's y'all. Me. So give her props. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so Margaret, she developed this uh, cutting to a rhythm. So in scenes where there was marching, she would cut on the footsteps. In musicals, she cut on the downbeats. Oh, that was one of her signatures. Cool. There was a lot of of women who were cutters is what they called them before they called them mm. editors. Uh, many women were cutters. It was, uh, they were called that because they use scissors right. and razors to physically cut right. the film. Um, and it was Irving Thalberg who actually started calling cutters mm. film editors. And according to Kari Bouchamp uh, in the book, without lying down the Francis Marin and powerful women of Hollywood, he started calling them film editors because of Margaret. Nice. Yeah, I know. They needed a little bit more respect. Totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they weren't just cutters, whole, they were film it's a whole editors. It's game to be an editor. It's totally Yeah. Different. Oh, absolutely. You're crafting the story. Right. And it's it said that you make the story of a film three times when you write it, when you shoot it, and when you edit it. So, like, absolutely. Editors are important. Oh, yeah. And I would even say certain directors are stronger in one of those totally. three. Oh, totally. um, George Lucas is the strongest in the totally. editing room as far as his direction, yeah. uh, where other directors are majorly strong in the writing yeah. process and some are really, really strong in yeah. production. Um, but yeah, it's a different style. So in 1929, Margaret was credited as the solo editor of The Bridge of St. Louis Ray. This film was also, uh, it was difficult because it was part sound. And so Booth became the go-to editor. So much so that actually Allie Aker wrote in her book, Real Women, that for three decades, no film left MGM without her imprint on what? it. And so that means, yeah, that means that some films she worked on, she did not get on screen credit for, but directors and producers wanted her input because her skill was very, very desirable. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> yep. So in 1935, she was nominated for an Academy Award for editing Mutiny on the Bounty. 
which is probably a film that a lot of people have heard about. Yes, Clark Gable. A film that she was an uncredited editor for, uh, but did a lot of work on, also won an Academy Award, and that film's editing was Ben-Hur. What? (laughs) She also worked on Ben-Hur as an uncredited editor. Wow. Yes. And that one did win an Academy Award for editing, where Mutiny on the Bounty was nominated, but didn't win. Right. Yep. And now it has a remake. Right. Of course it does. But from 1924 to 1968, Margaret worked at MGM. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a supervising editor. And so that meant that she worked on notable films specifically with her imprint on them were The Wizard of Oz, The Red Badge of Courage, and Geely. That's awesome. Right? That's (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So later after MGM, she went to Rastar until she retired in 1986. Now at Rastar, she was the supervising editor. So she was supervising The Way We Were, Funny Lady, Murder by Death, and Goodbye Girl. Those are just some of the titles that they did at Rastar. She was also an associate producer at Rastar as well. And she did films Seems Like Old Times, The Toy, and she was the executive producer of the slugger's wife wow yeah these are your classic 80 movies that i grew up with mm-hmm. <laughs> now margaret was also known to be quite a sassy gal she actually preferred the directors stay out of the cutting room yep. uh ray stark at you, she knows agree? what's up yes she knows what's up man <laughs> you're gonna love this story so ray stark at rastar said about her quote Margaret was tough. She was an unsentimental editor who read film like others would read a book. She was a perfectionist and she was considered difficult (laughs) by some, but others liked her because she was fast and she was tough. See, that just means she (laughs) was a filmmaker and she was doing her job. That's really all that means. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, totally. This is my favorite story of hers, though. Once George Roy Hill was working on an edit with Margaret and what Margaret said to him was mr hill are you telling me that you want that up on a 60 foot screen and george roy hill as he recalled the story said i i guess i don't do i (laughs) margaret said no you don't very firmly (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) so that is how george roy hill remembers and he is most famous for if i'm not mistaken butch cassidy and the sundance kid is the is the film that he directed what a way to be intimidating do you really want that on the big screen uh 60 foot screen large and in charge you sure you want that up there (laughs) yeah wow (laughs) i'll bet you she was right oh yeah i'm sure she was right oh yeah Uh Oh, yes. So Margaret, she was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1978 for her exceptional contribution to the art of film editing in the motion picture industry. Her final movie that she made was Annie in 1982. In 1983, she was awarded the Women in Film Crystal Award for her career. And in 1990, she was honored with the American Cinema Editor's Career Achievement Award. She died of complication of a stroke in 2002, but she was 104 years old. Can you imagine the things that she has seen? Wow. Yeah, starting with D.W. Griffith. And to Annie in 1982, that is an amazing film career. She got to see it and see film change, but also live through it and actually change with film. That is so cool. Exactly. Yes. And consistently stay not only employed, 
but the get right. that any studio would want. Right. Uh, they wanted Margaret Booth working for them. Holy cow, that's so cool. <laughs> so what comparisons do you see? Because uh, I've been living with these right. gals. Right. <laughs> um, and I've kind of pointed out a few here and there. But what comparisons did you see with some of these gals that we talked about? Well, I thought that there was an interesting comparison that was like, they were almost opposites. When it comes mm-hmm. to like Margaret versus Alice... Alice lived a long life, too. She was, like, 80. She mm-hmm. was in her 80s when she died. And Margaret was 104. So I thought it was yeah. interesting, though, that Alice's career was shorter. And she lived to see a lot develop in film, but she didn't get to participate in it. Whereas right. Margaret, she lived and she saw what happened and and she also got to participate in it. And it's almost in my head, like, which one do you want to end up like, you know, kind of thing. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You want the longevity or do you want the innovation? It's one of those things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. Do you almost burn out too fast with the innovation? Right. There's, you know, um, being being invaluable to a production. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. So that was one. I, I thought it gets really cool how they all chain link into each other. Like, all of these gals, right. like, influence each other in some sort of way, which is really cool. Can you imagine what they would think of independent film? Oh, my gosh. They would I mean, flip if they knew what was happening. They would love it. They would. Yeah, They'd it be, would be such a freedom. They would be so excited when they realize that everybody who has a smartphone can make a movie. Oh, my gosh. Right. That's so cool. It'd be fascinating. Yeah. I think that they would encourage everyone to go tell a story, totally. <laughs> to tell their story. Yeah. And for Alice to be natural. Exactly. And probably for Lois to to be controversial right. to dig deep oh to gosh, find yeah. that kernel of truth and to have a really outrageous title exactly. on it <laughs> and Dorothy would say find a star I think yeah you I know think what so. I mean yeah. find somebody that has that it factor I mean I don't think Dorothy was trying to find stars right. I think she was looking for somebody who was unique and charismatic yeah. and she wanted to know more about her um, because if you really think about it, you know, Catherine Hepburn, uh, Rosalind Russell and Lucille Ball, those are some interesting, oh, yeah. um, almost girl next door, but also like, I want to hang out totally. with them kind of totally. gals, you know what I mean? So I think that innovation as well. So then the big question is, so what did you learn? I'm almost kind of putting you on the spot with, uh, right. giving you four gals at once. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, as far as just new information that you learned, but also what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker kind of hearing their stories? Right. Well, I learned that the, a woman in, invented the boom pole, which is super cool. And like, I know, there's, right? There's so many inventions that were made that we don't give credit to women. Like, we're just like, oh, yeah, right. it's a thing. Like, no, this is really, come on, guys get all the credit all the time. Can we just, like, acknowledge this really Exactly. <laughs> so I think yes. that's really cool. It's just, it's so interesting to me how the lives that they led brought me and you here. You know what I mean? Right. Like, exactly. we wouldn't be where we are without them. Our lives would be so different without these gals. Completely yes. different. 
and it's just fascinating. And then the whole comparison again, do I want to end up like Alice or do I want to end up like Margaret? Like, it's kind of like, oh, that's very interesting to compare. Because I don't think either of them um, is a bad role model. Do you know what I'm saying? No, yeah, absolutely. It's what you want to accomplish out of your uh, career, out of your vision, out of your voice, out of what makes you happy. Right, exactly. It just puts things into perspective a little bit. Like, where are you in 50 years type of thing? Right, exactly. Are you expressing your voice um, or are you perfecting someone else's? Right. Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? Totally. Yeah, totally. But you're, you know, but you've mastered it and you're in it and you can identify voice and you can identify story. Totally. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot to chew on. And who's to say you can't be right. both? Exactly. Very true. You know what I mean? One part of your life, you know what I mean? You have you're going in one direction, another part of your life going in another direction. You know, lives are meant to be long. (laughs) That's true. That's true. You're meant to invent yourself constantly. It's okay. (laughs) Though the history books tend to leave them out and film schools don't cover their films and accomplishments, women were also pioneers of film. The innovations of Alice gave us the narrative story with natural acting and Lois gained financial pay equality in Hollywood, being the highest paid director many times over. And Dorothy launched the careers of many of our favorite leading ladies as well as inventing that boom mic. And Margaret gave us a rhythm, and it's up to us to continue that cadence that these women started and remember the lives and the legacies of their lives as much as their male counterparts. Absolutely. That wraps it up for us. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Your Gal Friday. We will be back next week with inventor of the windshield wiper, Mary Anderson. Don't forget to subscribe and support us on Patreon. For more information about this week's gal or to check out our previous episodes, visit galsguide.org. To support the show, visit the Gals Guide Patreon page. We've got great perks like behind the scenes, early access, and private live streams. Thank you so much for subscribing to Your Gal Friday.